Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening. Before we begin, we want to take a quick second just to thank all of you who participated in our first ever Hymn Tune Madness competition. We had such a fun time with this, and we were just really overjoyed to see all of you participate. Um, The participation far exceeded our expectations. So thanks to all of you who voted, who shared our posts, who commented, who got involved, um, who really made it such a fun couple of weeks. In particular, we want to thank Bob Moore for coming up with great hymn tune team nicknames and for Tony Ward for coming up with some really exceptional, exceptional team logos. And of course, congratulations to all of you on Team Thaxted, the Super Jupiters who won our first ever championship. So we look forward to doing this again next year. We have some additional surprises in store for you. And thanks too to all of you who have liked our Facebook page or followed us on Twitter and Instagram or who have subscribed to the podcast through iTunes or Google Play. It really makes a big difference. So if you haven't done those things yet, please consider doing so and please enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome back, Open Your Hymnal listeners. My name is Zach Stahowski. And I am Matt Reichert. And we are thrilled to have you back with us. So, Zach, last week uh, we started by you asking me about how my Lent was going, and I completely forgot my manners and forgot to reciprocate. So how how is your Lent going? Well, I think I told you that my goal was to try to be just more intentional with how I'm spending my time, where I'm putting my attention. But of course, Lent seems to have already passed me by, so to speak. Uh, I think... You know, I can look back on, on some times where I've really done that, but I tell you, it's been it's been kind of like a warp speed Lent. Do you um do you find that this season of intentionality helps in terms of like your creative output? I mean, as most of our listeners know, I think you yourself are also a composer. Do you find yourself composing more during a time of year like this? You know, unfortunately, I find that composing is one of the first things to go when I'm busy and. It's too bad because it's one of the things that I think I find great peace in doing. And I think, you know, probably what I should be trying to do is like flipping that, that when I really feel stressed out, I should try to sit down and, and, and do some writing. Yeah. And and maybe I guess my, I guess maybe my question was flawed because there's the assumption there, of course, that, you know, everybody approaches their composing with intentionality. I mean, I, I would imagine you have to force yourself to sit down from time to time, but I also imagine, like we hear in many of our conversations, sort of the inspiration just comes. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, usually, like, there's always a spark. There's, there's a couple, there's an idea, or there's um, a line of text that comes. Uh, that usually happens very fast. And then it's the rest of the work, the engraving, the arranging, the writing of the piano part, that's what takes a long time. And so I'm always, um, I guess, uh, fascinated to hear about these stories of songs that were written in five minutes, written in 10 minutes, you know, because I would venture to guess that really what they're talking about is that initial spark 
came in that time because it always takes a little time to to really put the whole thing together. Right. And and we've heard that story time and time again. You know, I mean, David Hawes talking about You Are Mine being something that just sort of poured out. Carrie Landry writing Hail Mary, Gentlewoman in the Car, or Dan Schutte writing Here I Am, Lord, on a Thursday night for a Saturday ordination. I mean, we, we hear that time and time again. And spoiler alert, you know, in today's episode with Paul Inwood, um, we're going to hear something very similar about the song Center of My Life. So I guess the lesson I should take away from all this is that I am thinking too hard about all <laughs> of that stuff. No one has ever accused you of trying too hard. <laughs> all right, all right. On that note, please open your hymnal to Center of My Life. Oh Lord, you are the center of my life. My name is Paul Inwood. I'm a freelance liturgist and music consultant. Uh, I live just outside Portsmouth in the south of England. Keep me safe, oh God, I take refuge in you. It's, uh, it, it's a song that pe- people say to me, I love your music, and, and they're talking about Center of My Life, and I say to them, well, I didn't write it, and then their jaws drop, and then I, then I tell them the story of how it came to be, and then they start to, to see it a little differently. Um, a friend of mine in uh, April 1984, um, uh, who was a seminarian, said, I'm going to be ordained in February 1985. Uh, would you write the responsorial psalm for my ordination? And I said, yes. And he said, um, this, this was directly after Easter. And uh, he said, this is a psalm I would like. I think it comes on, on Easter Monday, in fact. Um, it's Psalm 15, 16, depending on which numbering you use. And he said, uh, the, the psalm is fine, but the, the response in the lectionary isn't. Uh, can you find the response as well as, as well as write the music? And I, you know, in my usual fashion, said, yes, of course I'll do that. You know, very <laughs> arrogant, I now realize, and certainly complacent. At that, at that time in my life, I was um, writing a lot of music. For the past five years, everything I had done had been commissioned by somebody and the juices were flowing well, and you know, and I thought, well, there's plenty of time to do this. So, so I said yes. Um, so that was uh, April 1984. Well, by December 1984, nothing had happened, and uh, January 1985, still nothing. And now we're now we're into February, and on the, um, I think the uh, 16th of February is the ordination. And the night before, on the 15th, they're going to have a music rehearsal. And uh, the um, choir was going to be directed by Christopher Walker. And Bernadette Farrell was going to be the cantor, and she was actually going to cantor this psalm. And everybody who was anybody in England in liturgical music was going to be there except me. Because I had agreed a long time previously to do a a cantor's course in another diocese, so I, I wasn't going to be at the ordination. But I knew they were having this rehearsal on the 15th. And I knew that, um, you know, a couple of days before that, he would need the melody line to put into the worship aid and all that kind of stuff. So on the uh, 10th of February, which is, you know, five or six days beforehand, I was getting pretty desperate, and I did not know what to do. Well, what I actually did was stay up all night and pray about it. I mean, it sounds very easy. It was something that hadn't struck me. So I, I stayed up all night and I prayed about it. And at six o'clock in the morning, I had an idea. And that idea was the, the wording for the response. And um, the words and the music came together. And that was like the key which opens the door. 
and um, so by nine o'clock in the morning it was it was all finished um, I'd written the whole thing and by one o'clock lunchtime um, I had copied it all out neatly because this is before the days of computers um, I was just starting uh, to learn computers in those days and uh, then it was in the mail and it arrived just in time for um, just in time for to go to the worship aid and for the rehearsal over the girls and and that taught me a, a terrible lesson which I needed to learn and which I hadn't learned up to that point as a composer uh, it's that you know, you think you're in charge, you think you're in control, and actually you have to let go. And you have to let God use you as a channel. Um, and uh, so I, I think it's a little bit like, I mean, friends of mine who are alcoholics, you know, or they may have been dry for years, but uh, tell me that you need to bottom out before you can get help, before you can actually start to, to come back. And I think it was a bit like that for me. I made myself totally vulnerable before God, and God answered my prayer. And that's happened to me, you know, on a number of occasions since then, um, to the point where sometimes I feel slightly guilty about relying on the fact that God is going to, going to get me out of a difficult situation. So when people say to me, um, I love your music, and I say, it's not my music. It, I really believe that in this case it wasn't. It was God's music. And so I say to people, if, you know, it, it's not my music, it's God's music. If it helps you to pray, it's your music. If it helps your people to pray, it's their music. Um, so it all came about through that um, chance, a conversation with a seminarian friend of mine. Now, over the course of our podcast, we've spoken to several composers who um, have written songs for a particular occasion or because they were asked to. So Paul just spoke about how he wrote this psalm setting for an ordination. Uh, Dan Schutte spoke about Here I Am, Lord, and how that also was written for a friend for his ordination celebration. And it occurs to me that you know any type of creativity causes pressure, but when you're writing something for a commission, there must be a unique pressure to that. Um, Zach, I don't know what you think about that as a composer. Well, I think there are probably a couple interesting considerations when you are commissioned to write. Of course, you want to fulfill the expectations, you know, the technical uh, requests, like we want this kind of song for this specific uh, situation and we want people to react in this way you know like you know the laundry list will go on of what people are hoping to get out of a commission i think in speaking to other composers about this it's it's often in a way easier when you're given a set of parameters uh, rather than facing uh, just a blank page when uh, the entire musical and textual universe is at your at your fingertips, it's it's it, that can be quite daunting. Um, but when you're kind of narrowed in, that can often uh, breed a different kind of innovation. But I think maybe what's more interesting to me about the notion of a commission is just this idea that people have listened to your music and have now associated a certain sound or like a certain thing about it. And then how it is that you fulfill that order, how it is that, um, you know, you still try to grow creatively 
while at the same time fulfilling the expectations of what it was that the people first heard and fell in love with concerning concerning your music and style. Yeah, and I think that that speaks to this type of pressure that that I'm intuiting or identifying here. You you have certainly the um, the pressure to produce something or compose something rather for this occasion that's appropriate. You also have then the pressure um, to to write something you're proud of, but also that meets the expectations of, of sound. I mean, they, they chose you as a composer for a reason. And then the third pressure point seems to be the community itself. You're writing something for a specific community, and they have you know, their own preferences, their own abilities, their own ensembles. And that seems to be really difficult, especially when you consider writing something that might be sung for generations to come. Yeah, I think oftentimes those uh, considerations, too, can give birth to uh, ideas and creativity that might never have happened before. Um, an example I can think of just right off the top of my head here is um, Marty Haugen's piece, uh, Soli Deo Gloria. Huge choral arrangement, a lot of orchestration to it. I think if you are someone who really knows Marty uh, because of songs like Gather Us In, All Are Welcome, um, Maybe Eye Is Not Seen, uh, you might not uh, immediately suspect upon hearing Soli Deo Gloria that Marty Haugen was the composer of it, but I think that's an example of when the considerations of a, of a commission can you know, give license to and maybe uh, urge uh, composers toward trying new things. And circling back to this topic of compositional considerations, when we spoke with Paul, he shared with us some of his approaches to crafting harmony and melody. In general, I would say that I try when I write music to avoid the predictable, to avoid the banal. I think if, if you don't have that slightly original twist in things that you write, um, it's... Uh, it's probably not worth doing. I mean, that sounds very harsh. Um, I mean, there are composers, and we know who they are, who tend to write the same thing over and over again. And and uh, I've always tried very hard not to do that, and to have you know a slight. And I think that okay, you can be a channel for God's grace. You can be a conduit. You can use your um, musical talents and skills, but you still need to. Um, put a little bit of yourself in somewhere, and so the um, so the unexpected chord at the end of, of, of the response is 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 something that you know would be fairly typical of of the kind of things that I do. Um, and the uh, as far as the far as the verses are concerned, I think they're f they're fairly straightforward on the whole. But it's it's that little little thing at the end of the refrain where instead of going back to E flat, it goes to C major, uh, and it makes you sit up. Um, you know, and I think that's something that that, that happens in 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 good liturgy too. That um, uh, you know, when you're listening to a lector reading, you know, the angel said, and you think, ah, what did the angel say of the, the way that the reader does it? Makes you sit up, open your ears. Uh, this this has the same kind of thing. People don't go to sleep. It's funny how when you are studying composition, you learn all sorts of rules. And I think in liturgical composition, uh, in some ways we have even more rules. Uh, so it always fascinates me to see when a song 
works that break some of the rules. We've had uh, a couple instances of this. Of course, I think of our very first podcast episode on on Eagle's Wings, how the verse starts on a non-chord tone. It starts on um, the C sharp over a G major chord. Center of My Life uh, also does some of this where it places non-chord tones on strong beats. Uh, I think what's particularly interesting about this is that even though these chords don't exist uh, or these notes don't exist in the chords, um, the assembly still finds this, in my experience, to be to be very uh, singable. One of the eternal struggles for liturgical composers, I think, is the desire to write musically interesting songs, but to also stay within the parameters of accessibility and singability for a musically untrained assembly. And I think one of the tools that uh, composers use to maintain interest is harmonization. We've talked about this in other songs and other episodes, but I think this is a good uh, illustration of how uh, this can be done to great effect. In the refrain of Center of My Life, the range um, is very manageable. Uh, The use of sequence and uh, the phrase structure here, I think, lends itself to some predictability, which makes it um, immediately singable and accessible to an assembly, but uh, I think where the interest lies in the harmonization is this uh, relationship between our home key of E E flat major, and then this C major chord that Paul sprinkles in in both the refrain and the verses. In the biz, we would call this immediate relationship because uh, C major is built off of the sixth scale degree uh, in the key of E flat major. I guess to be really technical, it's a submediant relationship. But uh, the C also comes after an A flat chord, which is a third away, so we could call it a mediant relationship between there. I think if you listen to, you know, you often hear that kind of uh, relationship uh, in a lot of uh, sci-fi movie scores. And, um, you know, it's also uh, used a great deal by um, many of the late Romantic composers. And, of course, uh, you see it a lot in the music of Beethoven and Brahms. But um, I think what is interesting here is not only that it's an interesting harmonization, but the fact that the C major chord in the refrain happens on the words life and sight. And I think it just draws our interest, um, you know, to, you know, the meaning of maybe something new. Uh, and it, it actually serves uh, the purpose of maintaining musical interest, but also uh, painting the text. One of the other features of Paul's choral writing that I find interesting here is his use of what we would call contrary motion in the harmony. So when you have one voice ascending and another voice descending at the same time, and it on the page, it, it actually looks like the harmonies. I'm, I'm speaking primarily of the interplay between the soprano and the tenor line. Uh, they create a mirror image of each other. And while it is a compositional tool used in a lot of choral writing, here it actually also, again, serves the purpose of text painting because it creates a feeling and also just a very uh, visual 
a symbol of symmetry, again, speaking to this idea of the center. When Zach and I first interviewed Paul back in July of 2017, we were excited to speak with him about this song, but also about a variety of other topics. Um, One of which was what it's like to be a composer as a part of a group. Certainly, we've spoken to composers before that have an association or collaboration, but Paul has had two really interesting and very different experiences working with other composers. The St. Thomas More Group was a very loose association of people who actually um, came together because I was running the music side of the St. Thomas More um, Pastoral Liturgy Centre in London at the time, and they had all these people around the country who were doing self-publishing, and I pulled them all together and said, why don't we use the Thomas More Centre as a distribution point, and that's how that all began back in the 1970s. Um, and we used to meet together, we used to uh, critique each other's compositions and, uh, you know, th- there wouldn't be blood on the floor, but we would, you know, we would learn a lot from what each other uh, were doing, all that kind of stuff. But um, uh, each composer brought whatever they brought to the, to, the, to the mix. The Collegeville Composers Group is completely different. Um, it's, and it's been a unique experience for me and a fascinating experience because five composers and now six of us sit sit round a table and write music together. We do Lexio Divina on the texts of the day and then from that comes the, the words and the music of the, the antiphon and the psalm that we happen to be setting. And, you know, since then we've done a you know complete mass setting. We've done music for RCIA. The latest collection is um, bilingual music for weddings and funerals. Um, and that was f- even more fascinating because we were working in two languages simultaneously with six people around a table. I mean, can you imagine? So it's not somebody uh, comes to the, the table and says, look what I did. We all do it together. Somebody has an idea. Somebody else um, says, well, now supposing we put this on the end of it, or supposing we change the text slightly, and oh, and here's a descant which would fit, and all that kind of stuff. And so it's an organic um, growth uh, process um, where everybody is feeding in and nobody has a greater role than any other. Um, so you have to leave your egos at the door um, and it's very intense and you can't do it for more than three or four days at a time without driving each other crazy. But at the same time you have to learn to love each other in order to do it. So that's a, a completely different phenomenon from you know composers who just happen to be part of a grouping. This is um, you know actually writing music integrally um, uh, in in the group, not not bringing stuff to the group. I think you you learn some of the lessons. You you it's you're constantly broadening how other people um, think, how other people react to things. I've always been a composer who tries to start where people are and um, get under their skin and see what makes them tick, and then take them on a journey. We have a we we have something called called um, radio. We have radios one, two, three, and four on BBC National Radio. And radio three is the high class sort of um, classical music station, and radio four is a news uh, and uh, current events station, which has dramas and things like that. Radio one is the light music station, and I often s- s- try and start by thinking about you know what. Um, 
what a Radio 1 listener would expect when they come to church and and starting from that expectation and then trying to transform it and, and, and take them into something else. And the College of Composers is a fascinating group um, because um, you've got people who came through the chant tradition, you've got former rock musicians who are in it together, you've got um, men, you've got women, you've got ordained people, you've got non-ordained people. Now we have Anna Betancourt, who is our, you know, our, the Spanish member of the group. Um, and it's a great richness. And so w- what that has brought to me is, a, is an opening my mind to other things that, that, uh, that I might not have thought of before. And the second topic we really wanted to discuss with Paul was the trajectory of liturgical music following the Second Vatican Council in the United Kingdom. So far in this podcast, we've spoken to many composers, all of whom have written post-Vatican II, but all of them have been American. And we wanted to find out from Paul, someone who, who travels a lot between the U.S. and the U.K., who's worked with both congregations, um, what was it like in the U.K.? Was there, was there similarities, differences to the United States, some of his observations about differences between congregations? And so we were able to gain his insight and his expertise in our conversation. It's um, it, it's fair to say that that, that we've had a, a lot of the same kind of phenomena as you've had, not necessarily in the same sequence. So that, you know, we 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 went through a, a period where there was no repertoire, so people borrowed Protestant hymns um, and and started singing those in church. We you know people assumed that that, that church music was about um, uh, choirs and organs. And, and cantors. We, we, we measured heavily on the role of the cantor in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Then what we called folk music came along. It had existed before that. It was called gospel songs before that. And then, um, but in, by you know, the mid-1970s, that was firmly in place. By the end of the 1970s, the charismatic renewal um, had made its, itself felt, and people were moving away from um, sort of rather vanilla texts towards things which were more biblically based. So we've been through the same kind of history, and I think, you know, addressing the same kind of pastoral problems and trying to find the same kind of pastoral solutions. Um, I've been coming over here on a regular basis since 1984, and having a foot, you know, in both camps on both sides of the Atlantic, and having lived in Southern California for a number of years, um, uh, it's... It's easy to see that that, um, that that the English Catholic Church and the American Catholic Church are very similar in in a, in a lot of respects. In some other respects, they're different. The major respect would be money. I think there is no money in um, in the English Catholic Church because they're all descended um, ultimately from or most mostly from uh, people who came over from Ireland during the potato famines and didn't have any money, and so um, the, the church grew up in a in a different way. Uh, with a different attitude to, to spending in 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 the UK, you would say that the church puts money into things. Uh, in the USA, I would say that the church puts money in, in not only into things but into people. Uh, I think that's very important. I think the assemblies are the same. Um, I think that the, uh, um, the 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 way of of 
unlocking, if you like, what's the potential within assemblies is is a little different. In England, we we um, were influenced by uh, those in, in, in France and other European countries where the role of Cantor was um, established before we actually began to do anything like that, particularly France. Um, in this country, there are a lot of cantors, and I've said, you know, in various places in the past, that uh, a lot of them have a lot of good training musically, vocally, biblically. Um, uh, they, they know about liturgy. The one thing um, that they didn't have, and I think that's now changing, um, but there is at least a whole generation of American cantors who were never given any training in how to elicit a response from the assembly. Um, that that has now changed, thank goodness. Um, so I used to find myself going around this country doing workshops, remedial counter training, um, sort of uh, um, as a as a sideline. I would be presenting repertoire music, and people would say, "How do you get people to sing this?" And then I would say, "Well, this is how you get people to sing it." And I would end up doing, as I say, remedial counter training um, for the for the people who were there. Um, so we tend to use gesture differently. Um, from the way that you use it in this country. Um, and we tend to talk to the assembly in a different way from the way that you... Um, but the assemblies are the same, I think, and that's why I can stand up in front of an American assembly and I can do the same kind of thing that I can do uh, in England or I can do in France because I happen to be bilingual in French, which is very useful. Um, and uh, I, th I think people the world over, they want to pray, they want to sing. And it's our, it's our job to, to help them to do that. And now, here is a recording of Center of My Life in its entirety. take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, you are my God. My happiness lies in you alone. My happiness lies in you of joy in your presence. 
We'll be right back after a word from one of our sponsors. For those who trust in God, in the pain of sorrow there is consolation. In the face of despair there is hope. In the midst of death there is life. Yet for those who struggle with the inability to conceive, who know the pain of losing a child before birth, or who have faced their infant's death at the time of birth, know that this season of mourning is often held inside, hidden and unseen. But God does not abandon us. On the other side of loss, an incredible story of resilience emerges. Death is never the whole story. The hope of new life persists. Of womb and tomb, prayer in time of infertility, miscarriage, and stillbirth is a resource for individuals, couples, and parish communities who wish to accompany those on their grief journey. Filled with stories, prayers, scripture, poems, and rituals, this book and accompanying music CD serves as a guide in creating prayer opportunities in a variety of settings. Visit GIA Publications today to order your copy. Together, let us bear witness to the Christian mystery that new life is born of the womb and of the tomb. Welcome back, Open Your Hymnal listeners. It is now time for the Open Your Hymnal playlist. This, of course, is the part of our show where Zach and I get to share with you extra music drawn from today's conversation. Zach, last time I started with my first pick for the first time ever, and it felt really unnatural. So I think we should go back to you kicking us off with the first pick. I am so glad that you were the one to make that point and that I didn't have to say it. People, you can stop writing in. Zach is doing the first pick of the playlist again. Well, we heard in the episode about how Paul has been a member of the St. Thomas More group. And so we have featured several composers for the, from that group in our episodes and on our playlist. But one we have not yet featured is Anne Quigley. And so this is her song, There is a Longing. Oh, 
And now that I have done the first pick and all is right with the world <laughs> once again, we'll hear Matt's next pick. So I also uh, wanted to pick something related to one of the groups that Paul mentioned. So he talked about the St. Thomas More group. Paul also discussed how he's a member of the Collegeville Composers Group. And again, as he mentioned in the episode, what's distinctive is these composers all write together. So there isn't one composer's name who appears on any of their compositions because they're all involved in it. So we want to share with you one of their selections. This is from the Collegeville Composers Group, a song entitled, God Will Wipe Away Every Tear From Their Eyes. I called on the Lord's name. There shall be no mourning, no weeping. God will destroy, destroy death forever. Wipe away every tear 
of the Lord in the land of the living there shall be no sorrow no suffering my vows to the Lord I will fulfill before all the people there shall be no mourning no weeping God will destroy destroy death forever I just think the way that this Collegeville Composers Group works is so fascinating, and so I wanted to feature another composer from it. This is a song by Cyprian Consiglio called Behind and Before Me. Behind and before 
me and my mother with your hands before the day that I was born while in secret being formed a mystery I barely understand Lord how you search me my God how you know me see me when I rest and when I rise from behind and before me my God you explore me so terrible so wonderful For my next pick, I wanted to choose another song that incorporates text based upon Psalm 16. Um, I also wanted to choose something that's in a very different style. So this is from the composer Lourdes Montgomery, El Sendero de la Vida.
And of course, to finish us out, we wanted to feature another song by Paul Inwood. This was a song that I heard recently at the Liturgical Composers Forum, where Paul has been going every year since its inception. Uh, this, I thought, was just an absolutely gorgeous song, so I wanted to share it with you all. This is called Your Gentle Touch.
Thank you for listening to Open Your Hymnal, and special thanks to Paul Inwood for speaking with us. Center of My Life is published by OCP. The recording you heard was released by OCP. For more information about this song, the other songs you heard, links to purchase this music, and additional resources can be found at our website, openyourhymnal.com. Production assistance and support for this episode was provided by OCP and by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians. Be sure to follow Open Your Hymnal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes and Google Play. For Open Your Hymnal, I'm Zach Stahowski. And I'm Matt Reichert. Thanks for listening.